welcome to the public morality. One need not be a cultural anthropologist to conclude the America of 1787 is not the same as America 2023. The artisans of the American experiment might find it difficult to recognize the diverse nation still held together by the words, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. But is this notion of the we being challenged? Can the Constitution that endured through the War of 1812, the Civil War, women's suffrage, the Civil Rights Movement, Vietnam protests, Watergate 9-11, and January 6th endure for another 235 years in its present form? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Professor Joseph Russomano. Professor Russomano teaches First Amendment law at Arizona State University. Professor Joseph Russomano, welcome to the public morality. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin our conversation by having you discuss how our understanding of the First Amendment and perhaps more broadly the Constitution has evolved along with societal changes. Sure. Um, what I'm uh, inclined to, to say in response to that is more than understanding, I would say that the interpretation of the Constitution and the First Amendment has evolved over time. Um, that interpretation is affected by various factors, how the culture itself evolves, uh, the needs of the people and how that is perceived, uh, what we as a society regard as just, uh, as well as uh, even things, for example, that we learn uh, from the sciences, what scientific discoveries uh, tell us uh, about ourselves and our society. Um, I, I think it's also important to, to note in response to that question that there are differences of opinion on how much the reading of the Constitution and its interpretation should change with the times. Um, members of the Supreme Court, for example, uh, uh, are, are so-called originalists or textualists who subscribe to the notion that the Constitution's parts uh, should be applied strictly according to the meaning uh, that they had at the time they were written. Uh, other members of the judiciary, including other members of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, believe otherwise, that, uh, that in fact that interpretation, that reading of the Constitution uh, should evolve with the times. So uh, in spite of the Alien and Sedition Act 1798, there were no landmark First Amendment cases until the 20th century. Any way to account for that? Is that part of the evolution? Or it, it, we just didn't think that um, taking away free speech uh, by the federal government was something to uh, go to court about in, in, the, in the 18th century? How, how, what, how do you account for that, sir? Well, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, it is it is part of, of that evolution. I think uh, initially uh, there was, a, at, at best, a very narrow view of what speech and press freedom meant. Um, as much as the founding of the United States was a pushback against Great Britain. Uh, there was a British model of the law, um, most notably uh, established by uh, uh, a person there named William Blackstone that uh, was, was followed here, established the common law. Uh, and in terms of uh, what, what we call the First Amendment, uh, it primarily meant that speech and press freedom was little more than forbidding prior restraint. That is uh, the government's ability to stop a publication before it even happened. So there, there, there was, um, and, and for a long time, you know, more than a century, um, a, a general belief that certain speech or press was legitimately something to be feared that reading or hearing certain things would lead others to commit uh, undesirable behavior, those others being the, the people who either read or heard those, those utterances. 
Uh, and it wasn't really until the 20th century when uh, I would suggest, among other things, among uh, among the kinds of factors we've previously mentioned, you know, the, the cultural and societal changes, uh, it was in, in that early 20th century when the sciences really started to seriously address various issues, uh, including social sciences. And if if you trace the chronological development of speech freedom, which, as you suggest, really didn't start until the early, early 20th century, it parallels the study of the effects of the spoken and written word. Uh, and those effects, it was ultimately concluded, are not direct. Uh, hearing or reading an advertisement, for example, doesn't mean the audience will go out and buy that product immediately. Hearing or reading a negative view about the nation will not necessarily lead to insubordination or unpatriotic behavior. Uh, that is, there wasn't arguably so much to fear about speech. And so uh, a preliminary justification for restricting speech uh, that it, in the words of Justice Holmes, presented a clear and present danger, uh, went out the window. And of course, uh, it also required insight and courage from members of the Supreme Court to implement these sorts of ideas. And that uh, initially came in the form of people like Justice Holmes uh, and Justice Louis Brandeis. Yeah, as you mentioned Justice Holmes, this brings us to uh, the Espionage Act of 1917, which is at the heart of the Schenck versus United States, which was a First Amendment landmark First Amendment case that um, that Schenck was a member that I believe the Communist Party opposed to the draft of World War One. Um, the Espionage Act minus would be considered, in my view, a violation of the First Amendment. I guess my question to you, sir, minus a war, should our constitutional understanding also be accompanied by an asterisk in, in, in this written invisible ink in that there are still some exceptions that might otherwise not be considered uh, constitutional, would get the benefit of the doubt under certain unique circumstances? Well, I, I certainly agree with, with the notion that uh, during periods of war uh, and other times where uh, the nation and the democracy might seem to be more fragile than is typical, that it's those uh, times where uh, that, that have been the, the catalyst for uh, movement uh, in the law. Um, you know, I, as to the Espionage Act, I would argue that even in wartime, uh, it is and was unconstitutional. Uh, and I, I think your question uh, touches on whether our constitutional standards, including the First Amendment, of course, um, should be constrained during wartime. Uh, my response to that is no. Uh, in fact, there are some who argue uh, that we need those freedoms, especially during wartime or other periods that stress the nation. Uh, I am reminded of Benjamin Franklin, uh, who is credited with saying that those who would sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. Uh, and I, I tend to uh, agree with that. Uh, a, a minute ago, I, I, I mentioned fear, and I, and I think uh, fear is, in fact, a significant motivator for, for many people, uh, including those who make laws, uh, including those who interpret laws. Uh, it always has been and always will be. Uh, I, I guess I count myself among those who suggest that we need to get beyond fear and recognize that issues of public concern should be discussed and debated uh, in a manner that, as the Supreme Court once said, is uninhibited, robust, and wide open. And that includes uh, recognizing that the marketplace of ideas is open uh, even to viewpoints that not everyone agrees with. Uh, I mentioned Justice Brandeis a minute ago. He he addressed this, uh, what he called an irrational fear uh, in a court opinion in 1927, 
uh, writing among many profound passages that the remedy to speech that we, that we believe is bad is not to silence it, but to respond to it with more speech to counter those allegedly bad ideas. And as the great Justice Holmes once wrote, the First Amendment protects not just the thought with which we agree, but also the thought that we hate. And I was, as you were doing the last sentence, I was thinking about as late as, you know, the post 9-11 uh, uproar, if you will, and that there was that fear that um, gave us the Patriot Act that many also consider uh, encroaching on Fourth Amendment protections, as, as, uh, as I agree with you that the Espionage Act, uh, under any circumstances, um, is unconstitutional, but yet, um, like the Alien Sedition Act, uh, somehow passed muster with the Supreme Court. So, but this notion of fear is, is something that has been with us since the inception and is still with us in the 21st century. Oh, ab absolutely. We, we see uh, episodes uh, of that uh, all the time, including up, up to the, the present. Uh, there's uh, a wonderful book, if I can uh, refer to that, uh, by Jeffrey Stone, uh, who's uh, a member of the faculty at the University of Chicago School of Law called Perilous Times, uh, in which he examines, uh, as I recall, six different periods in American history when, uh, as, as I have said, uh, where the nation seemed to be especially fragile and where the nation's response uh, to that fear that accompanies those periods was, uh, in the view of many, uh, improper. So what, in your view, sir, um, was an, the original understanding of a free press and why is it necessary for the preservation of democracy? Hmm. Well, uh, the reason the founders believed uh, that the protection of speech and the press is necessary is, is varied. Uh, but at the top of that list is holding those in power accountable. Uh, the founders were savvy enough, in fact, to even restrict their own power and more importantly, to restrict the power of their successors. And the only way that the press can do that, the only way that the press can be part of that process is if it is free and independent of government control and influence. Um, now there, there are other reasons, but I think they're, they're interwoven with, with that one. Uh, if, if you are going to have a democracy, a self-governing democracy, then an informed citizenry is essential. Uh, we want our voters, uh, because a democracy means that people vote, we want those voters to be informed. Uh, we want the people uh, to have their voices heard. And so uh, freedom is necessary both for the press and uh, for citizens in individually uh, for, for all of these reasons. Um, but, but I would add that yes, indeed, a, a free press is a pillar of a self-governing democracy. So since 1789, when the constitution went into effect, um, the first amendment has protected a free press. Does, the term media, however defined in a 21st century context, have those same protections? Yes, ab absolutely. They, uh, the media today uh, should have the same protections and, and overall they, they do. The, the courts have recognized that quote unquote press as laid out in the first amendment is broadly defined, uh, does apply to the various uh, advancements that we've seen in uh, t t technologically in uh, in our ability to to communicate uh, through the mass media. And with that said, uh, I, I want to talk about a landmark um, First Amendment case, New York Times versus Sullivan. Why is that considered a landmark case? And talk about a, a little bit, if you would. Oh boy, uh, where where to begin? You're right. right. Uh, yeah, uh, so important. 
in fact, uh, sometimes I, I have told my students uh, in the past that uh, while it is uh, impossible to say that any one court ruling in our field is the most important, New York Times versus Sullivan is the most important uh, in, in so many ways, at least. Um, it is a pillar of First Amendment freedoms. Uh, so uh, it, it was a libel case, but, but so much more. It, it was also a civil rights case, uh, a press freedom case, and, and a speech freedom case, too. Um, the, the the idea that there are, are limitations on state sovereignty uh, was was an issue in it that all states must meet certain standards. Um, so in the view of many, including members of the Supreme Court at that time, this was a, a 1964 ruling, uh, libel law was uh, in the current vernacular being weaponized. And that was happening too often and too easily by people who didn't like what a news organization published about them. And so the way that they pushed back or fought back against that was to file uh, a libel claim against, against that news organization. Uh, today, by the way, we have uh, laws in many states that, that prohibit frivolous uh, filing of these kinds of claims uh, they're called uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation. And so laws have addressed that. Uh, but at that time in, in the early 1960s, uh, the concerns uh, included that uh, the news media would self-censor to avoid libel claims. Uh, the dynamic of libel law as it stood then created, uh, in other words, a so-called chilling effect. And that's problematic if the press is supposed to, in fact, be, uh, as some have called it, the, the fourth of state. If it is supposed to uh, truly, as we said earlier, hold government officials accountable. And so, as, as the court said, uh, debate in issues of public concern, uh, as I mentioned earlier, should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. And the court also recognized that sometimes that debate will be vehement and be caustic. So in other words, what was starting to happen at that point uh, in the Supreme Court was a recognition that there was a significant conflict between libel law and how it stood then and how it was being implemented then and the opportunities that it offered for potential plaintiffs, conflict between all of that and the purpose of the First Amendment, a free and independent press. So, so what to do? Well, uh, the court, uh, largely in the person of Justice William Brennan, decided that, as I had said, that it had been too easy for libel plaintiffs to win cases. And in addition, there was the recognition that that especially shouldn't happen when the plaintiff is a government official who didn't want to be held accountable. And in New York Times versus Sullivan, that's exactly what the situation was. Sullivan was a government official uh, in the state of Alabama. So the court, uh, in finding for the New York Times uh, in this particular case, also did a lot more. It made it more difficult for libel plaintiffs who are public officials to win libel claims. And they did that by developing a concept called actual malice. All plaintiffs in a libel case have to prove that the defendant was at fault. And traditionally that meant the defendant was negligent in some way. But what the Sullivan court did was to say, no, that's not enough now, if the plaintiff is a public official. Now the plaintiff has to prove that the defendant acted with actual malice. What does that mean? Either knowing that the information was false and still publishing it, or exhibiting reckless disregard for the truth. 
private figures still only need to prove negligence on the part of the defendant. Uh, another thing that this uh, ruling did was to create what the court called breathing space, okay, to make it uh, allowable, so to speak, for a libel defendant to have committed minor error in its publication. Um, and so that that became part of the ruling. Uh, the actual malice standard, though, is is still, I think, the the, the big takeaway. Uh, and, and as I said, what it what it did is it it tilted the playing field in American libel law to favor defendants when a public official is the plaintiff. So is there a New York Times v. Sullivan application to the the uh, most recent case with uh, Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News or is, is there something about New York Times v. Sullivan that's applicable there, in your view? Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, that ruling and that actual malice standard, in fact, are, are front and center uh, for, for this reason. I mean, the, uh, the actual malice standard is applied to and has been applied to every libel case since 1964 um, when the plaintiff is a public official. And so, uh, yes, in, in this case, it would be necessary, it is necessary for Dominion Voting Systems, which is a, a, a public figure in this case, uh, for it to prove that Fox News uh, acted with actual malice, that it either, again, knew the information that it published published in the broad sense of the word to make, make the information public, that it knew the information was false and published it anyway, or exhibited reckless disregard for the truth. And what we've seen in the depositions that have been made public uh, about this case is uh, really Fox News helping Dominion make its case, helping Dominion prove that there was actual malice, because what has come out is that uh, Fox News knew uh, and its people knew that claims that they were making, that they went onto the air with, were false. And yet they stated them anyway, as if they were fact. Um, you know, and Dominion has to be sitting back and saying, thank you very much. We'll we'll accept that gift. If I can just chime in, I just want to, just for clarity, that in one of the major differences between New York Times v. Sullivan and Dominion Fox News was that the, the uh, libel in question was an ad that had some minor errors that you referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, that the New York Times may not have even known about as impossible, which is very different from what you just articulated, that that Fox News, per their texts and emails, actually knew that the information that they were publishing airing was false. Correct. Uh, you know, another thing that I that I tell my students is, yes, New York Times versus Sullivan involved an advertisement. Uh, but I urge you in trying to understand the, the ruling and its application to uh, almost immediately put aside the fact that, that it was an advertisement uh, because the content was judged largely in the same way that it would have been had it been a, a news article. In, in fact, as, as you know, this, this advertisement was... Uh, a, a full page text uh, uh, about what civil rights leaders had experienced uh, in in their marches uh, in the South, and and that that was the source of of, of the libel claim. Uh, you're you're absolutely right that uh, because it was an advertisement, there what could have been an argument that the Times wasn't directly responsible for it. But uh, the law, the courts took the approach uh, th that it was, that 
in fact, the New York Times was named as the primary defendant in the libel case, as well as some civil rights leaders individually. Uh, but uh, you're, you're right that uh, we have an advertisement in that situation and not in the Dominion case. And this sort of goes back to uh, the initial reasons for having you on the broadcast today. Is New York Times v. Sullivan, I believe, uh, next year will be 60 years old? Should precedents rendered in completely different media environments, in this case the 1960s, remain the unimpeachable standard today? I mean, how do we know when something has run its course or do we? Well, uh, at least within this situation, within uh, the, the context of New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, I, I would suggest that the standards established by that ruling uh, are even more essential today than they were in the 60s. Uh, in an era when the news media are being attacked uh, more than ever, when their credibility is being questioned, more than ever, uh, including by public officials, sometimes in the highest office. Uh, it's easy to see why the press's freedom and independence is more vital than ever. And as we've discussed that, uh, you know, if, if one subscribes to the notion that a free and independent press is vital to a democracy, then, then that becomes, uh, you know, essential for, for the nation. Um, you know, let, let me even be a, a little bit more specific. You know, I, I said public officials in the highest office. I think you probably know what I'm referring to. Uh, when Donald Trump was running for president, he called for libel laws to be examined so that plaintiffs could more easily win claims. I mean, let's face it, that, that's you know, what, what he was after. He didn't like the fact that people like him have to prove that media defendants act with actual malice in order to win a, a libel case. Uh, and it's also important to remember that for a plaintiff to win the libel case, the material published has to be false and it has to be proven that it is false. So it, as important of an element as actual malice is in libel cases, and I don't wanna de-emphasize that at all, but there are other uh, elements of the case that a plaintiff has to prove. And one of them is that what they are suing about was false. And of course, the defendant gets the opportunity to prove that the information was true. And a lot of would-be libel plaintiffs, when they learn about that, uh, suddenly and miraculously seem to back off their desire to file a libel claim uh, when they realize that their opponent, the defendant, gets an opportunity to prove that the claim was true. Two Supreme Court justices independently, Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, have called for New York Times v. Sullivan to be revisited, uh, which is to say time is caught up um, with this case. Uh, how do you um, negotiate those two arguments? Well, I mean, I, th I think if, if we go back to th the purpose of New York Times versus Sullivan and specifically the purpose of the actual malice standard, it was to uh, reduce the likelihood that public official plaintiffs would frivolously file libel claims simply because they don't like what is being published about them. Um, there are a lot of people, myself included, who think that is a good thing, that that, 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 that has been reduced. Um, you know, if, if actual malice, if the actual malice standard is revised or done away with entirely, uh, I think it's uh, safe and accurate to predict that that reduction in frivolous claims will also be deleted and we'll see a, a radical increase in them and a resurfacing of the chilling effect 
against the news media, that they will be, you know, it's just, it's natural, it's it's human nature to, uh, you know, avoid uh, claims against oneself where uh, millions of dollars uh, may be at stake. Uh, and where you are, where you are more likely to lose, uh, you know, I, I would point out, if, you know, if we go back to to 1964 with the Sullivan ruling, uh, it's it's not a coincidence that in the immediate aftermath of that, relatively immediate aftermath, that we have some of the news media's finest moments in aggressive reporting, reporting on topics like the civil rights movement, um, Watergate, the Vietnam War. Uh, those, many would say, undoubtedly happened because of the actual malice standard that was applied and that additional layer of protection that the news media have against libel complaints. Um, you know, as far as Gorsuch and Thomas uh, on the Supreme Court, you know, I would also respond by saying uh, it, it depends on what your politics are. And and yes, uh, I am saying that the United States Supreme Court is a political institution now. You know, don't think for a second that the majority of the current Supreme Court doesn't have political goals. So what happens with uh, the actual malice standard? Uh, I would say it depends on how much a free and independent press is valued. I'm going to play the devil's advocate for the Gorsuch position because I, I, I find Gorsuch's opinion, in my view, to be a little more nuanced than Thomas's. So the Gorsuch opinion, I'm responding. Uh, I'm standing proxy for Justice Gorsuch right now, and mm -hmm. and I would and I would say to you, well, the culture that affirms. Um, New York Times versus Sullivan is not our culture today. And we could say the same for landmark cases such as Brandenburg v. Ohio, uh, you know, obviously Roe v. Wade. Um, is there room for what appears to be the Gorsuch position to reevaluate Sullivan without actually doing away with Sullivan? Oh, sure. Um... And, and uh, you know, I mean, please understand, I, I am not advocating for the notion that, uh, you know, no law is is subject to review. Uh, of course, they, they should be subject to review and, and, and reconsideration. Um, with, with New York Times versus Sullivan in actual malice, you know, as I said, uh, yes, I, you know, I, you know, one would have to acknowledge that our culture and society are much different now than they were in in 1964 and and even in the years immediately succeeding that. Uh, but you know, as as I mentioned earlier, I think there's uh, an argument that there's more need now for the actual malice standard than than there was even then, as as the news media. Uh, has grown by leaps and bounds with with technological advancements and so forth, um, and 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 let's let's say media in general, not just not just news media, but media uh, that are platforms for the exchange and communication of information. Uh, you know the the need for actual malice, I would say, is is stronger than than ever. Uh, all of that said. I would also add that uh, the Supreme Court has generally utilized the concept of settled law. Uh, that is that that precedents matter. Um, and as I said, this isn't to say that the law established in those precedents can't be reexamined, uh, but it's it, it's a fine line. Uh, you mentioned Roe versus Wade uh, in in your question. It, it had been generally acknowledged. Uh, even by some uh, members of the court uh, who uh, eventually said otherwise, that Roe versus Wade was settled law, and yet that was invalidated uh, last summer uh, with the Dobbs ruling. And so, you know, I th I think what we need to recognize is that 
uh, the current court, uh, at least some members of it, a majority of its members, have thrown away some traditional practices in order to achieve political ends. Is there a First Amendment response, or should there be a more robust First Amendment response, given the increasing role of the social media plays in our lives? Well, that's the <laughs> that's the big question today, isn't it? Um, uh, you you may be uh, addressing in part the the notion that uh, that social media platforms are private companies and that they can establish their own uh, policies to a large extent. Uh, our courts have said that repeatedly, um, and and yet we know that uh, social media have become part of the, the public sphere. I mean, heck, a, a major part of it uh, these days. And so how should that um, be handled? Uh, should, should the First Amendment uh, and its principles apply to social media? D to a large extent, they, they do. Uh, and to a large extent, even laws like libel law, which we've been discussing, uh, can also be applied uh, and indirectly limit what is uh, communicated on social media. I mean, the, you know, any notion that just because something is on social media uh, that it is immune from prosecution of wrongdoing, such as libel, uh, should be dismissed uh, very quickly. Uh, those those are uh, applicable to to social media, just as they are to to other. Uh, so-called le legacy media. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, in response to your question, the, the First Amendment do does apply to, to social media. Um, but I know that the other side of that coin is that some people think that uh, social media needs to be regulated in ways that it, it currently isn't. Uh, to a large extent, as you know, we uh, up to this point in in dealing with this very difficult and challenging issue, uh, we have largely relied on the platforms to to self-regulate, uh, and they uh, do that to some extent, but not to the satisfaction of of many people. No, I raise that because sort of ironic through, through our conversation thus far, we've been talking about so these parallel tracks between our constitutional understanding and, and the changes in society and the culture. And social media represents one of the larger changes in society and culture. And we seem to have really no substantive constitutional response. So it's sort of, in my view, social media sort of floats in this hybrid space and we're not sure what to do with it. Oh, I think that's, I think your characterization is exactly right. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know that that we necessarily need or want a constitutional response to it other than to, uh, you know, apply the First Amendment uh, to social media and uh, maybe even more importantly, uh, recognize that the, that same First Amendment is going to limit attempts to regulate social media, just as it limits attempts to regulate uh, other media. Uh, I, I, I think that is is proper. I think you know any any media regulation, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, if if you look at at the First Amendment and and how it's written and how it has been interpreted, I mean, at 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 its core, what it means is that the government shall not interfere with the process of speech and press. Okay, and if we want to, we can throw the word media into that as well as as we indicated earlier that press has a has a broad de definition. Um, so. What does that mean in terms of attempts to regulate social media? Well, there are a lot of limitations. There are a lot of challenges uh, of, of any attempt. So 
you know, I, I suspect that there are people who are looking into this, who are studying it and trying to come up with ways to strike a balance. Uh, libel law, after all, limits uh, arguably speech and, and press, uh, but our courts have accepted it. You know, that's part of the, you know, evolving with the times uh, no pun intended, given that New York Times was is a major part of that. Uh, and and I, I think that's probably you know what is happening now. I know as a as a culture, uh, you know, as a people, we can be impatient and we want things to be fixed and fixed now. But uh, some of these things require uh, a, a long view and, uh, and and careful approaches to them. From your perspective, sir, is our constitutional inheritance hamstrung by something you mentioned earlier? You talked about uh, the choices of originalism and versus, these are my words, a living constitution. Are we just sort of languishing um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an intellectual arrested development between those two pillars? Well, it, it certainly presents a, a problem. Uh, you know, I, I think it is, uh, in fact, a foundational problem right now uh, on our Supreme Court. We have a, a majority, uh, what some have called a supermajority, because it's six, six of the nine justices who, to one extent or another, practice originalism or, or textualism. Uh, they're kind of treated synonymously. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, it is it is this view that uh, the laws, uh, including the Constitution and, and its amendments, should be interpreted uh, in the way that they were meant at the time they, they were written. Uh, whereas, as you say, living constitutionalism views it differently. And while it does not discard the original text by any means, it still believes that they should be read or interpreted uh, according to the times and that they should evolve with the times. Uh, you know, we're talking about the First Amendment largely today. That That is a prime example. Uh, certainly there are other areas of the law where that has happened as well. And as many would say, as, as it should, uh, you know, we should not view uh, anything strictly through the lens of something that was written in the late 18th century, for example. Uh, so this. Um, this tension that we have between the original school and the living constitutionalism school um, is is problematic. Uh, and uh, you know we if if we look at the last term of the Supreme Court and and some of the uh, rulings that we uh, that we received, uh, particularly in June of 2022, uh, I think we can see uh, a clear example of this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a handful of rulings in particular. They were all six to three rulings. Uh, it was the same six justices in the majority each time. It was the same three dissenters uh, each time. And you can divide them very clearly between the originalists and the living constitutionalists. So, um, and that that uh, tension, the, the loggerheads that are uh, at work there, uh, do not seem to be uh, transformative. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, it doesn't look like we're going to get any change in in that uh, anytime soon. Well, you, I mean, that's really some of the themes um, that I drew from your your recent books, The Stench of Politics, is that are we just so tribal um, that a good decision, a good Supreme Court decision is the one that aligns with my outcome uh, and a bad one, obviously, is the reverse. Are we just so tribal that it may take a, a, a generation to, 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 to fix that dilemma? <laughs> Good question. I I do, I do not know uh, how long it may take uh, to to address that. Um, 
as as you may know in in that book that that you mentioned, uh, I do uh, recommend some procedural changes uh, on on the Supreme Court. Uh, my hope is that they would play a role in addressing this this divide. Um, but I, I concede that there's there's no guarantee that that, that would happen. Uh, you you bring up the the notion of tribalism. Yes, I think um, you know I, I think what what we see now is we have a, a divided court within a divided nation, and they are f- frankly reflections of one another. Uh, it's not that one is leading to the other. Uh, I think they they reinforce each other, and um, there is uh, frankly not a lot of hope that this is going to change anytime soon. I'm going to take a term um, from the first chapter of your book, uh, The Stench of Politics. Um, Is there an exclusionary nationalism, that's the term, that's in tension with America's constitutional values, in your view? If if we regard not just the constitution, but the the nation that that it represents uh, as being one that to succeed, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it's very uh, clear. You know, many have called it uh, an ex, you know, it's the American experiment. Uh, it's an ongoing experiment that w- will never end. Okay, we are we are you know striving for perfection but with a recognition that we will probably never reach that. Uh, but, but, but the journey is, is, is what is important here. Um, if, if the success of, of the nation uh, and its people, we the people, uh, depends on uh, compromise, uh, general agreement on uh, important issues, uh, the ability to uh, in a civil way, debate matters of public concern. Uh, then, you know this. It, you know what uh, the the notion of exclusionary nationalism uh, runs counter to all of that. You know it, it. It you know it goes back to the tribalism and and the divided uh, nature that we seem to exist in right now. Uh, it is it is very difficult. Uh, for the nation and its people to move forward in a positive way uh, unless uh, some of these uh, phenomena can be addressed and uh, hopefully put to bed. The Constitution has been amended 27 times. Mm-hmm. And really, 17, if you take away the Bill of Rights, which is sort of one fell swoop and, and was sort of a pre, pre, set of predetermined amendments to get the mm-hmm. Constitution uh, signed in the first place. Does those 17 amendments, does that suffice, given this conversation we've been having about society, culture, and the, our constitutional understanding, does that, does, does that suffice, um, given our fundamental understanding of liberty and equality, and how it's changed so over time. You're asking, do those 17 amendments uh, handle handle what we need? Yes, yes. Are they keeping pace? Um, as you can tell by my <laughs> hesitancy, uh, I'll, I'll regard that uh, as a as a good, comma, uh, challenging question. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm inclined to say is that I think uh, the pace of the nation and its evolution can be dealt with in ways other than through constitutional amendments. And, and largely, that is what has happened. I mean, we, we, have, we have federal law, state law, local laws, um, and and even the law itself is not necessarily uh, the way to handle various problems, issues, and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, I am probably part of the school that believes that 
uh, constitutional amendments uh, should be handled uh, carefully and should be considered rarely. Uh, and and of course, let, let's recognize, you know, even if even if there was some con some consensus in some pockets to amend the constitution in a particular way, how difficult of a process uh, that that is. Um, uh, it's and, and especially especially in a divided nation as we have now, it's hard to imagine that seventy five percent of the states could agree on anything much less something that might be uh, uh, entrenched in a constitutional amendment, uh, a proposed one. So, um, you know, I, I, think the, I think the Constitution is uh, just fine as it is. Um, I think it has flexibility built into it. You know, if you, if you look at the way it, it's written, especially those amendments, and, and I will again cite, cite the First Amendment, I mean, you know, we've we've talked about how the interpretation or reading of the First Amendment has changed over time. Well, in part, that's because of how it was written. It was written in, you know, many contend, and and I'm among those, uh, written in a way to allow for that flexibility. Uh, some might call it elasticity uh, for future generations to, to deal with it, you know, to adhere to the principles, the general principles that are laid out, but to adapt it to current times. Um, so, you know, if, you know, as, as I've said, if, if I have a concern about flexibility or elasticity, it's not whether it's in the constitution, uh, it's in our courts and particularly the United States Supreme Court. Professor Joseph Rusamano, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Pope Rally. We really appreciated your insights, sir. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.